Well, again, I say to you, Kairitoa Kastutha'u, greetings, uh, household of God. Uh, that word uh, for greetings, uh, I'm using a lot, not just to be an annoyance, but to help our little theologians, because that word is here in this passage. And uh, little theologians, I don't normally uh, ask you to do this. I don't normally ask you to actually um, uh, just write a word, and, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to write a word, uh, make, it, make it a beautiful word. The uh, first word uh, of our uh, Lord and Savior as he comes out of uh, of the tomb, and he uh, meets the women. Uh, our passage this morning is Matthew 28, and it's just two verses. Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10. And the word that shows up there is uh, the word that's translated as uh, greetings. And in Greek, it's kairate. And so you see uh, on your screen uh, the words, little theologians. That's the, uh, the subject matter of your art. Um, kairate, um, uh, chi, alpha, iota, rho, epsilon, tau, epsilon, kairate. As I preach, uh, make those Greek letters beautiful. Our passage is from Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10. Let's pray first before we look at these two verses. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for speaking to us, for making yourself known. Uh, we love your word and yet ask that you would increase our love for your word. In fact, uh, may our love for your word grow each and every day of this present age. I thank you for making yourself known. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. And this is God's word. So this is a very short passage, but let me introduce the passage by uh, describing to you a personal frustration uh, that happens in the Jones house. I think this is a pretty relevant illustration simply because uh, Karen and the kids are home right now, and they can prove to you what I'm about to say. Um, we drink a lot of water uh, in my house, and so we always have these carafes uh, or bottles that are filled with water. They're in, uh, in the refrigerator. Uh, you pull one out, pour yourself some water, and you put the carafe back in the refrigerator. And I can't tell you how many times I open the refrigerator to see it just full of uh, empty carafes. I mean, there's no water. It's just a cold carafe. Someone emptied the water and didn't refill it. And so, um, Karen, you and the kids, someone go to the refrigerator right now. Uh, see if there is a very cold but very empty carafe in the refrigerator right now. Refill the carafes. So I have an opportunity to uh, preach at my kids uh, in person, but also through FaceTime. Go figure. FaceTime, is that, that's not what we're doing, is it? We're doing something else. Uh, the, the techie people are telling me, no, we're not doing that. This is a short passage, isn't it? It's just a couple of verse. Uh, a couple of verses. Uh, the verses uh, have uh, these words that I want to draw out, and, and really there's a number of things I can tell you about these two verses. There's, uh, there's a lot here, but I, I want you to notice uh, four words that show up in this verse. 
surprise, behold, actually is uh, is just before, or no, it's it's right at the just at the beginning of the passage. And behold, uh, so uh, I want to talk about the surprise that's in these two verses. But the word greetings is also there, and greetings literally means rejoice or be glad. And so, uh, right after surprise, I want to talk about rejoice. And then making our way through the passage, uh, there is this verb. They, the women, they take hold of the feet of Jesus. And I want to spend a little bit of time uh, with that single word in the Greek, taking hold. And at the very end, uh, these uh, women are sent out by Jesus. Uh, he says, do not be afraid. Uh, uh, go and tell. And so I want to talk about that concept of being uh, sent. Surprise, rejoice, taking hold, and sent. Now, all of these are verbs. They're mostly uh, commands, uh, but uh, one of them isn't. The taking hold isn't a command. But I want us to think about these four verbs. Let them mull in your head for a little while because we're going to work our way towards some applications at the end of the sermon. Where are we going? Well, we want to talk about uh, filling. Uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then my preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And the Greek word for vain literally means empty. Uh, We could say foolish, uh, without purpose. And go back to those empty carafes. What is it going to be to fill those carafes? They're empty. They're useless when they're empty. They need to be filled. And what the Bible tells us is it tells us that if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith actually is purposeless. Our faith is empty. Our faith uh, is foolish even. And so where we're going with these uh, four pictures in these two verses is here. The resurrection of Jesus is exactly that which fills our faith with purpose. The resurrection of Jesus is exactly that which fills our faith with purpose. Let's begin with that uh, first word. It's, uh, it's behold. It, uh, in the Greek, it literally means uh, to look, to see, to pay attention. Uh, maybe an equivalent would be uh, to snap your fingers, uh, to get someone's attention. It's to, to strike uh, activity in their inactivity. You know, everyone is surprised at the resurrection of Jesus. There's, there's nobody that uh, is just kind of standing on the fence with regards to the resurrection. Uh, there's no one who hears about the resurrection in the first century and shrugs their shoulders. Uh, behold, Jesus is standing before them. Uh, take note. See. Earlier in Matthew 28, on the dawn of Sunday, uh, the women, they go to the tomb, and there's a great earthquake, and uh, when they arrived, uh, the tomb was already open, or, or perhaps they, they saw the tomb uh, be opened, uh, but uh, be that as it may, uh, there were Roman guards who were probably laying on the ground uh, right at this moment, uh, and they're laying on the ground because they are filled with terror. Uh, behold, they've seen something. Why? Well, there's an angel in the form of a man, or maybe maybe two angels, uh, depending upon the gospel accounts, um, and they're standing in dazzling apparel, and the women certainly see uh, the dazzling figures, and they themselves are clearly frightened. Behold, 
And then the angel reminds them of what Jesus had already told them, and they're filled with, uh, Matthew says, a great or fear and great joy. And then they run to the disciples, and then verse 9, Behold, they're in the middle of doing something, and Jesus, he met them. And they stop. They pay attention. Matthew writes verse 9 not having actually witnessed it. You know that, right? So Matthew is actually hearing this account uh, from uh, those who were there, those who know, and it's important enough to, to uh, Matthew that it would actually show up in the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus right in verse 9. Behold, Jesus, he stopped these women. And notice the, the angels had already told the women, already told them that Jesus has risen. And, and in fact, the angels have spoken to the women who said that uh, this is what Jesus told you. He told you that he would do this, and now he's done this. And there's a sense in which they shouldn't be surprised. Well, think about surprise for a moment. Uh, my uh, family had a wonderful opportunity to uh, spend some time in Italy and when I was in college, I uh, loved architecture. I still love architecture, but uh, one of the buildings I look forward to seeing when I was actually in Rome was the Pantheon. Uh, now, I had uh, read about the Pantheon. I'd seen uh, pictures. I, I knew uh, more than average about the Pantheon. Uh, however, when I saw it, I was surprised struck by it. It's in the middle of a neighborhood that seems rather unassuming. Uh, and the, the gray is a very dark gray, and this building just kind of rises out of nowhere as you come off of a narrow street. And, and when you go inside the Pantheon in Rome, uh, it is soul-stirring. The, uh, the, the big vacuum on the inside, the fact that the diameter of this space and the height of this space are exactly the same, uh, to, to see the light shifting as it uh, peers through the oculus at the top, uh, I knew a lot about the Pantheon, you wouldn't think I'd be surprised by the Pantheon. I was dreadfully surprised, wonderfully surprised. There's surprise, and then there's surprise. And the women, they knew a lot about Jesus. They'd heard him teach. They believed things about him. But there is this jump when Jesus is before them from the imagined to the real, if there isn't a surprise here, then there's a problem. And the women were with Jesus for perhaps uh, as, as long as three years. Uh, one of them is the mother of one of the disciples. And, and they knew he would die, and they knew he would rise again. He told them this. They were in the presence of uh, the body of teaching of Jesus. And, and in fact, they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And then here they are. They're told by angels. It's like doing a lot of research on architecture, but it's still different from actually being there. And if there isn't a surprise, there's a problem. Now, I'm going to come back to this because I think that's important. But there's a couple of obvious things to notice here when uh, this word behold shows up in the beginning of verse 9. Uh, two things I want us to notice before moving on. The first is this. You know, Jesus has said nothing at this point. The beholding has happened purely by virtue of the presence of Jesus. It's because Jesus is 
He says nothing at this point, and there already is. Behold. That's the first thing. I know it sounds obvious. The second thing is also obvious, but I'm going to state it anyway. Who's not surprised at the resurrection? Jesus is not surprised by the resurrection. Jesus himself has done the will of God. He has remained innocent. He has willingly taken upon himself the penalty uh, of others. He has trusted his Father, and he is not surprised. Now, all of this in that word, behold, I want you to, I want you to just uh, let simmer in your minds and hearts for a bit to the end. And the next word I want us to look at is, uh, is the kairate word. Uh, greetings, as I said, it literally means rejoice, uh, be, uh, be glad. And so uh, it would work as a salutation. When you met someone in the market, you would say, Kairate, uh, greetings. Now, um, it's, it's very fair to say that greetings isn't always heard as rejoice, be glad. Uh, sometimes it's just a form of respect. It's what you say to important people. But sometimes it's really just a formality. You could say kairate, not, not really mean that you want the person to be glad. I think we, we do this pretty often. We say to someone, good day, or uh, welcome, or have a nice day. Have a nice day is, is the example, isn't it? Do we really uh, want people to have a nice day when we leave a store after, we, after we've made our purchase, when we say have a nice day? Do we come back later on to find out if they have indeed had a nice day? And we just say, have a nice day, and we walk out. So kairate can be like that uh, as well, merely a formality. But here it's really important for us to understand kairate literally. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are rejoice, be glad. Now, you know what a platitude is, right? You know uh, that a platitude is just this this flat or uh, thoughtless cliche. Um, again, it's a lot like uh, have a nice day. Uh, a platitude is, in my mind, even worse. A platitude is saying to someone, hey, don't worry, it'll be better tomorrow. We got no proof that it'll be better tomorrow. Um, uh, all of this will go away, and you'll look back on it, and it won't be hard at all. Or, or, or simply, just, just be happy. You should just be happy. You should just be yourself. A platitude is, is something that's flat and thoughtless. But Jesus says, be glad. And there's a lot to not be glad at. I mean, we, we know that these women have been weeping for three days. Jesus is not with us. Think about today. There's, a, there's actually a lot today to not be glad at. There is hurt, and brokenness all around us. But Jesus says, rejoice, be glad. Do you think it's a platitude? Well, I think if you do, you need to think again. Why is it different when Jesus says, be glad? Uh, He is the very embodiment of what it means to be glad in this present age. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus Christ opens up a brand new era in the world. Uh, There is a new dominion, a new assurance. Everything is changed if the man who was once dead is resurrected and he says to you, be glad. These are his first words in his resurrected body. Lips that used to be cold and pale and dead, they speak. 
a diaphragm that was limp and would, was no longer able to push air up from the lungs to generate speech, that diaphragm is pushing air. And his words, they have an object. If formerly dead diaphragm and formerly dead lips are speaking, and they're speaking to me. You see what he's doing here in this passage. He's saying greetings, and not to the thin air. He's, th- he's saying greetings to these women. And the words are not only confident, the words are self-referential. If there's no resurrection, the diaphragm and the lips won't work. But if there is a res- resurrection, when those working lips speak, then there's potential for real gladness. The Bible says that his resurrection is actually the first fruit of the believer's resurrection. If there is his resurrection, then there is my resurrection. And if there is my resurrection, well, there is gladness. Kyrate. What are we to do with this? Well, again, just like the surprise of behold, I want the rejoicing of Kyrate to simmer for a bit. Let's move on. The very end of verse nine, the the woman, uh, the women, they, they they come up and took, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And I want us to focus on that that taking hold of his feet. Now, taking hold in the Greek is just a, is just a single word. And there's a lot of uh, holding or holding fast to Jesus during his Passion Week. You know what I mean by that? There's a lot of holding, a lot of grabbing hold of Jesus during his Passion Week. He's seized an awful lot, and it's the same word that's used here. And he, uh, the, the leaders are plotting his arrest, and that word for arrest is the same word that's used here, kartao, take hold. He's already received a lot of holding, as it were. But what these women do is different, isn't it? And the women have an almost visceral response of uh, taking hold of Jesus. Have you ever been on a ladder uh, working outdoors and a gust of wind comes and the ladder just shimmies just a little? And your gut reaction is just to grab tighter. Or when you're leaning back uh, in a chair and, and you're just about to lose it. And your gut reaction, it just it corrects the fall. And it's almost, when you're, when you're reading this in the Greek, everything just happens so quickly. All the verbs, all the actions are condensed tightly uh, together. And, and that's what I mean by it's uh, visceral. It's almost magnetic. The, the, the women, they're, they're compelled. And the word for worship is a very strong word. It, it actually means to bend down, to fall before. So not only are they taking hold of uh, the feet of Jesus, uh, but they're bending down. There's a sense in which it's redundant. Yes, they're, they're taking hold of his feet, and yes, they're bending down. The two have to be done at the same time. Now, the resurrection makes this taking hold dramatically poignant. Yeah. Uh, the church, uh, later on, is going to uh, preach that Jesus is not held back by one thing. He's not held back, uh, Peter says in Acts 2.24, he's not held back by death. 
You know, God, who is the judge, who has the authority and the right to, to hang tight to him, to bind him in condemnation, uh, death can't hold Jesus because Jesus has met all of the divine requ- requirements of God the Father, and he's met him perfectly. So God can't hold him in condemnation. Uh, death can't hold him. And in fact, the, 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 in the New Testament era, uh, the preachers of the gospel continue to go back to Psalm 110 that says that Jesus is the one uh, who will make all of his enemies a footstool. His enemies are actually going to be at his feet because death can no longer hold him, but death can hold them. And the the women, they actually fall and they uh, grab hold of his feet. There's a sense in which the women are grabbing hold of that part of his body that exercises the most intense authority against all of his and all of God's enemies. He'll crush the, the head of the serpent. Where? He'll crush the head of the serpent under his heels. And the women, they fall before uh, this most dangerous part of Jesus, his feet. And the woman, uh, they almost take the role of the enemies of Jesus in a sense. Uh, They're laying before Jesus. They uh, cower before him, surrender before him, uh, make themselves his captives. And they grab hold of his feet. Isn't that a powerful image? The resurrected Jesus is just out of the tomb. And they grab his feet, surrendering everything before him. You can crush me if you want to crush me. Here's my head. Now, again, same thing. We need to return to this uh, in a moment. But let's look at the, at the fourth thing. Jesus actually sends the women out. Now, I want us to consider the explicit commands of verse 10. There's three of them. Do not be afraid. Go and tell. Do not be afraid. Go and tell. Now, clearly, here in verse 10, uh, we have command verbs. Now, if we know the story of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we know that he taught in his glorified body uh, for many days, and we know that uh, a part of that teaching is the Great Commission that we read at the very end of this chapter, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. And in Matthew 28, 20, he sends his 11 disciples to do what? To make other disciples, to make disciples of uh, all the nations. But we often don't think of the Great Commission with a preparation for the Great Commission. He's actually sending out his daughters. And the thought is that, that Jesus, um, he is beheld by them, and then they take hold of his feet, and without skipping a beat, Jesus, he commands them, and he sends his daughters out immediately. There's a lot to notice here, but let me say four things about the sending out. The resurrection of Jesus is the very power behind the sending. With the resurrected voice, with the resurrected feet of Jesus, it will defeat all enemies. It's the resurrection that's the very power behind sending these women out. That's the first thing. The resurrection is the power behind the sending. The resurrection is the graciousness of that sending as well. I always admire when theologians uh, notice this about the passage that uh, in the sociocultural world of the first century, uh, women were closer to the bottom of that scale than the top of the scale. 
But here they are being the first ones to see the empty tomb of Jesus and Jesus himself actually sending them out that they would go to the disciples and that they would instruct the disciples. There's great grace in the, in the resurrection because there's great grace in the sending of his daughters. Resurrection is the power. Resurrection is graciousness. Resurrection is the content of the message. And these women are, are actually uh, going to deliver one message. What's that message? He is risen. That's the message that the women are carrying. Uh, Jesus in his resurrected body, he's the very content of their message. And then finally, Jesus is the resurrected one, is the very assurance of the sending. Power, graciousness, content, and assurance of the sending. If you look at Matthew 28, 19, this is the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, that's his resurrection authority. Jesus is actually sending these women with an authority that has already been asserted. It's asserted in the resurrection. And then he he says at the very end in uh, Matthew 28, verse 20, the very end of the Great Commission, he says, Behold, there's behold again, and behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. The resurrection of Jesus is everything about the assurance of being sent by Jesus because he will be with them. Do not be afraid. Well, we're going fast. We're looking at these four images, but what we want to to discern is this. How is it then that the resurrection fills our faith with purpose? How is it that our faith is not empty, but it's filled with a resurrection. We've talked about the surprise. We've talked about the rejoice. We've talked about the taking hold and the sending. But let's look at them one by one and see if there's an application for us uh, today, this Easter Sunday. The surprise. Looking at the beholding of the resurrection. There's something about the resurrection that is uh, valuable simply by its presence, without uh, Jesus teaching at all the man who is risen. And we'll, never, we'll never know now in this present age uh, what exactly it will be like to stand before the resurrected Jesus. And we study Jesus, and we believe uh, that we will see him face to face in that last day, and we uh, pursue uh, that knowledge with our intellect, But no matter how much you know about the resurrection, uh, we as Christians can count on the fact that our understanding is feeble in comparison to standing before the face of Jesus and seeing the resurrected man. And there ought to be a constant yearning for the unimaginable in the Christian walk. Scholars talk about the the role that imagination uh, plays in our sanctification. I think of uh, men like uh, Lee uh, Riken or uh, Alan Jacobs, uh, men who tell us that uh, we need to have uh, an ability to imagine, to be creative, to think, because this is how we apprehend uh, Jesus, because when we see him, it will be beyond our imagination. I dare say... Uh, some of us grow bored with Jesus. Well, think if that's you. Behold, he has risen. Behold the body. 
And you will one day, if you're a Christian, see that body yourself. That's surprise. What about the gladness of a believer? You know, Jesus said that Abraham learned the gospel and was what? And was glad. It's the same word that's, uh, that's used here. Uh, Abraham, he learned the gospel and he was glad. And so are we. There's a sense which it goes without saying. Uh, we're uh, glad to be believers. But we also need to be willing to admit that some things in life are saddening. And they're suffering and hurt in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But Jesus, he addressed that as well. He says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will be glad and no one will take your joy from you. We will rejoice in fullness when the glory of our Savior is revealed. So we give each other space to be sad in this present age. But we don't give our brothers and sisters space to say, I'm not glad now and I'll never be glad. Because the Bible says that when his glory is revealed, that joy will never be taken away. But right here, the first words of Jesus, gladness, are important to the Christian. Or gladness is important to the Christian. And what about the taking hold of Jesus? I didn't tell you this before, but that word to take hold is understood metaphorically throughout the first century church. In the New Testament era, we actually find this taking hold used often with reference to our sanctification, walking as Christian people. We think about the women who are taking hold of the feet of Jesus, falling upon their faces before him. But in their walk as Christian women, they are every day taking hold of Jesus. I mean, the biblical examples are all over the place. We take hold of the name of Jesus Christ. We take hold of the head of the church of Jesus Christ. We take hold of the confessions of the church, the teaching of the church. We take hold of the hope that is set before us. Taking hold is a daily, regular part of the Christian life. Now, dare us think that taking hold is something that happens at conversion, but I'm done with that. The taking hold, that picture of women grabbing the ankles of Jesus, that's a picture of your daily life as a Christian taking hold of Jesus. And there are a multitude of ways of doing that. And then finally, the sending of Jesus. The, the, the sending, his, uh, uh, sending these ladies out is actually the central thrust, if, if we will, the organizing principle uh, of the Christian life. We, we struggle so mightily, don't we, for a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, and knowing what it is I'm supposed to do with my life. And what we do is we, we fill that carafe on our own. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that that's vanity. That is a vain faith. That faith needs to be filled uh, with the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the very one who has written that purpose for you. Debates today over identity are especially important for the Christian. Remind the Christian of what their identity is. Their identity is found in Jesus Christ, who reigns in his resurrected life and has the authority to set our purpose he has the authority to become the center of our conversations as we go out and as we speak. And the message that we have is not our message. It's the message 
of Jesus Christ, the one who is resurrected, the one who is our king, the one who will one day uh, judge the entire world. And we have an opportunity to be his sent ones. And not only that, to be his sent ones without fear. He is the one true king. And when we look at this, we, we, we're looking at the resurrection uh, with uh, a broader vision for what it means. Uh, there is a surprise in the resurrection. There is a gladness uh, that is a promise of the resurrection. Uh, there is a taking hold of Jesus in that resurrection that's something that we participate in every day. And then there is the great uh, purpose of the Christian life, the great purpose of Christian faith. And that Jesus has himself sent us out as his soldiers and servants. We come back to the purpose of, our, of uh, who we are as Christians. It's the resurrection of Jesus that fills our faith with purpose. We have that great opportunity to notice that Easter Sunday. I want to encourage you. If you're searching for your purpose, or if you think that the purpose of Christianity is purely cultural or societal, or the purpose of Christianity is purely intellectual, well, you need to think again. The reality of the resurrection can never allow that to be the case. Contemplate the resurrection. I'm glad that you're joining us here this morning, and I want to encourage you, if this church is new to you, Continue, continue to spend some time with this church because he is risen. Let's pray together. Thank you, King Jesus. Would you continue to stand before us? Would you continue to fill us with gladness? Would you continue to receive our worship and would you continue to command us as our resurrected king? We come to you this morning in your name, in your name alone. Amen.